The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. Jarvis Cocker, founder and frontman of legendary English band Pulp, takes us through a lifetime of objects and mementos hoarded for years in his attic crawlspace. The objects hold stories, some Cocker might not have otherwise told. In this discussion with Miff Warhurst as part of Antidote 2022, Cocker explores questions of creativity and music and the deep significance of everyday objects that most people throw away. This event was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in September 2022. Nice to see you tonight. Thanks for coming out. And I've got to say, um, I lived in Sydney for a couple of years and, and coming back to do this at the Sydney Opera House is always such a joy, such a beautiful building. It never, ever gets old. So it's a real privilege to be here tonight. Shall we get into it? Yes. I think so. Let's do this. Jarvis Cocker, an amazing musician who's given us just so much joy over the years as the front band of the 90s band Pulp, which I know you and I loved, and as well through broadcasting on his BBC Six radio music program, which was just magnificent. I listened when I lived over there, Sunday service. He has basically given us a lot of joy over our lives and thankfully now he's gone and written a long-awaited memoir which is called Good Pop, Bad Pop and I've loved delving into it over the last couple of days. And while it is definitely full of gems and nuggets about the first 25 years of his life, it stops at around about that age, then he also gets to them using a device that I think is just fabulous. It's actually one of the best devices I've seen for a memoir and I'm a bit jealous actually. I've just written one myself and I wish I'd I'd come up with this idea. It's so good. He examines the everyday items of his life that he's collected along the way and stashed in a loft for the majority of his life. So he's just got all this stuff, chucked it in bags in a loft and And that's been the inspiration for the book, which I think is just an absolutely brilliant idea. He went through the contents of the loft and decided what to keep or throw, or cob, as he says, and you'll learn about that during tonight's um, chat. And from it came the book and a discussion about how the everyday stuff can reveal so much about us and how the everyday can and does, in fact, inspire creativity, which is what we're here for tonight. Where does creativity come from? And it inspires it in the most remarkable of ways. It's a brilliant idea, and I'd love you to give a huge warm welcome to someone who who loves the sound of a crowd because it is pretty weird being down the line. So give him a really rousing warm welcome. Jarvis Cocker. Hello, Jarvis. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah. It's early in the morning in the UK, so thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. And the crowd are vibrant. They're ready to go. They're excited for this. I've got to say, though, Jarvis, just starting this book and and the concept of the book made me a little bit anxious because I think not just you, but we have all got a cupboard or a, a box or a bag of that stuff that's hanging around that we're never, ever going to get through. So what made you finally want to go through it? Oh, well, yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, um, 
Originally, this idea of looking aloft was just a small part of the book. Uh, I, I, I'd already started writing the book. This was about five years ago, and uh, I wasn't getting that far. I, I think I'd entered into writing a book in a slightly overconfident manner, thinking, oh, well, you know, I've been writing songs for so long, so writing a book will just be easy. It would just be like a very, very, very long form. But obviously, songs and books are completely different. Like, a song has a chorus, you know, which you repeat over and over again. If you put that in a book, people would just think, that's a, that's a typo, or, or, the, or the author is mine. So, I was doing this book and it was kind of slow work. Uh, it, was a, it was a more kind of general thing about creativity, I suppose. And then uh, a woman who uh, was one of the editors at Jonathan Cape, the publishers, said, forget all the other stuff, make it all about the loft. That's the most interesting thing. And, you know, none of us like to be told what to do. But I thought about it over a weekend and thought, actually, that's true because it's about real things. Um, um, and as you say, you know, uh, it, it, is a, it is a collection of junk. I'm not in, under any illusions, really, as to the fact that, you know, I don't think these objects are precious. They, they've done something for me, but really, if you were to walk past them on the street, you'd just think, oh, that's rubbish, you know, it's garbage. But for one reason or another, I, over the course of my life, have collected this stuff, carried it with me from flat to flat, and then left it all to fester in this loft of a house in East London that I used to live in maybe 25 years ago. Some friends of mine live there now. And from time to time, as you say, we all, I think we all have that, either a loft or a cupboard or even a pocket, you know, that's got loads of rubbish in. Handbags for me as well. Handbags are always full of crap, yep. Yeah, so you, <laughs> you kind of think, well, I'll get round to looking at that one day. Uh, and that one day never seems to come for me. But it eventually came. I just decided I had to do it, and I and I dived in and um, and kind of literally dived in because I think you've got some slides there. But um, mm. the the, the you, you'll see if you have a look that the actual loft. It's not like a big room. It's it's like a storage unit within a loft conversion. Shall we have a look at that photo of the loft? I think we have it up there. There we go. <laughs> As you can see, I think, I think that picture's got me in the... I'm just giving you a sense of scale there. Uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, so, to, so the process of going through it was quite arduous because, as you can see from that picture, you can't stand up, so I had to kind of crouch, get in, and then really kind of almost swim around in the cobwebs and the dust, just pick things up and then bring them back into the room and look at them. And as you said in your introduction, uh, then it was a process for me of thinking, what, do I keep it? Do I cob it? Throw it? Um, but I took a picture of everything. And I can't really say why that was, but something, there was like a little voice in the back of my head that said, you should do that. Maybe there's a story in here. Amongst all this stuff, maybe there's a story waiting for you. Well, there definitely was a story. It was a wonderful step-off point to all the stories and it, it promised so much more than, I guess, when you, when you see what the objects are. So I think we should delve into the first object. And this was the one that grabbed me the most when I first saw the book because it reminded me of an advertisement in Australia that was played regularly and I loved it because it, it, it implied 
a whole lot of, uh, you know, upper class, uh, beautiful sort of, you know, rich people's tendencies that I would never achieve. But what you've kept as part of your stash of stuff from the loft was this little bit of Cousins Imperial leather. <laughs> Do you remember the ad? The audience might remember. Tahiti looks nice. And they're on the phone and they're in a bath on a, on a private jet. And so to me, Cousins Imperial leather was... Uh, it, it really, um, it spoke to me of, of another world of, of rich people and fancy people. But you've kept this little bit and it's not even the real bit of soap. Like, it's just a little bit of paper. Why did you keep oh, yeah. this? Well, look, I can show you. I've actually got it here with me today. No way. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, don't want you, no, I don't want you to get the idea that I travel with this all the time. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned the thing about this. It, it really was marketed as kind of luxury in soap form. Mm. Um, <laughs> it really says luxury now, doesn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. So the reason why I've got this is... Uh, and, and this is really... This gives you an insight into what the lock was like. So mm. it, it wasn't like lots of treasures hidden away. There was stuff like this. So when I found this on the floor of the loft. I was kind of mystified for, for a, a while. I just thought, why is there a piece of soap up here, you know? Surely I have never got washed up in this place. That would be kind of gross. Um, and then I remembered, so really, the, the as you can see, it's really just more label than soap. And that's the significant thing, really. So. Cousins, I don't know if it was the same in Australia, but in the UK, sometime, I think in the early 90s, they changed this label design. They did a more kind of modern, jazzy label design. And I was really appalled by this. Um, <laughs> so then I entered into this kind of slightly obsessive uh, practice of going to shops, reach into the back of the shelves and trying to find you know, the old style label. That worked for a couple of months. Eventually, the new label was everywhere. And this was the last bar of soap I found with the original label. When it got down to this stage where it was not functioning as a bar of soap anymore, <laughs> um, I could not bring myself to throw it away. And so it went up into the lot. So this is a piece of rubbish, but it does say something about me. Um, not a particularly flattering thing, but maybe that as something that I don't like change, mm. you know. I, the thing had changed. I didn't like that. I tried to keep things... I tried to find some stability. I tried to hold on to it, you know. So, um, and, and as for why that would be, um, my... We didn't have this soap in my family house, but my grandparents had it. And I think maybe that had something to do with me having some kind of attachment to it because I used to go, me and my sister sometimes used to go and stay at my grandparents. And uh, their flat, it backed onto a railway line and it had uh, there was a window with that kind of beaded glass that stops people snooping on you whilst you're in the bathroom. <laughs> As trains passed by, it made this lovely kind of light effect, uh, like a kind of whoosh. And then there was the smell of the of the imperial leather. That was a really nice smell. And um, and then I what I used to do was uh, I found out that if you turned the hot tap on their sink just a tiny little bit, 
then you would get this kind of a kind of a honking sound, but something to do with water pressure. It sounded a bit like a goose being tortured somewhere. <laughs> and um, this combination of the of the lights of the trains going past, the heady scent of the imperial leather, and the <laughs> of the pipes <clears throat> was kind of when I was a kid. This seemed very exciting, but. This, this moment of excitement would only last very for a short time because my grandma would run in and say, you're going to cause a burst pipe, stop that now. So uh, maybe that's where this, this attachment came from. I don't know. <laughs> I love that, Jarvis. Although most people would say that your lifestyle has changed all the time. It's up and down. It's You're travelling here, there and everywhere. So that's not the kind of change I think you're implying when it comes to being resistant to it, are you? Well, but we, I mean, I mean, this is a bit of a leap conceptually, but, you know, I'm in the UK at the moment and, and there's a feeling of that at the moment. You know, the Queen passed away uh, two days ago. She's been the Queen for my whole existence, for, you know... Uh, it's one of those things. I think people don't like change. They, they want certain things to be permanent. It, it gives you a feeling. It might be a false sense of security, but it gives you a feeling of security. When these things go away, you, it feels like you've had a bit of the carpet pulled from underneath you. So although uh, the soap thing is... is I, I, I will admit it's slightly obsessive behaviour, but I think it's part of a thing that humans, I don't think, I think we want things to, to, to stay the same, mm. yeah. Mm. I'm going to go to the next slide, and this one will show something for the people who are keen to find out a little bit about the musical nuggets and gems that I spoke of that are also in this brilliant book. And, and this one comes from, I think you're around about age 15. It was your science book number four that you had, and there's lots of images of this in the book, so if you want to look more, you, you'll... It'll be worth having a look at the book. But this contained something that you found which I think actually shocked you a little bit. It was the Pulp Master Plan. You were already coming up with an idea for the band before you even had a band or any musical experience. And you've kept this. And keeping it told you a lot more about the moment perhaps than you, your memory could of this time. Would that be right? Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, this is... here. I, I just so happen to have got this one as well. So here we are. <gasps> You've got the actual book. That's gorgeous. Oh, yeah. So, so this is like kind of uh, the other end of the scale. You know, finding a piece of ratty old soap in, in the loft is one thing. It's junk, basically. Finding this was kind of one of the first things that I thought, OK, this, this idea of self-excavation, of looking at every object in turn, might bear fruit because the, the important part, you, as you say, it's an exercise book, but then look at this bit here, you see. So this is, it says pull, 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 pull. So this is like, when I saw that, I, I had the kind of vague glimmer of recognition. But I still didn't really know what I was going to find when I looked inside. And when I opened it up, as you say, Pretty much uh, on the second page, we get this, which is uh, which astounded me. Yeah, so this was me, as you say, around the age of fifteen, wanting to be in a band. I'd wanted to be in a band for a very long time, probably since the age of seven or something. But now, I've decided that I'm going to 
write down what the band is going to wear. <laughs> love it. It's, you've, you've done nothing but create a fashion guide at this point. And I love that. But, but it was what was available to you at that moment. You didn't have musical education. You didn't have anything to, I, I guess, to, to kind of practice on. So you were left with this. I think it's genius. Yeah, well, you can see, you can kind of see that on this other page where I've tried to, I've never been able to read music. So this is a really sad attempt to, to write out an idea for a song with these little sticks saying that's like hit, 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 hit. Uh, yeah, so, so, um, I think, yeah, I think it was like, um, I think nowadays they call this kind of thing, what is it, manifestation or visualization. <laughs> If yeah, you manifesting, can, you're right. Yeah, so if you can picture something uh, in enough detail, then maybe it will come true. So in my case, this was I was imagining a group that would go on stage wearing duffel coats. Uh, Very impractical. Jumpers. It would have been a bit hot up there in yeah. a duffel coat, wouldn't it? <laughs> exactly. Garish T-shirts, plain shirts, rancid ties, drainpipe trousers, pointy boots, White baseball boots, Oxfam jackets, uh, silly socks, shortish hair, and a sequin used for a silly purpose. <laughs> whether you would wear them all, whether you would wear them all at once, I don't know. Because as you point out, you would be absolutely well. You'd be, you wouldn't be able to move, and you'd be too hot. Yeah, <laughs> Jarvis, that is absolutely adorable. But what's it saying about that young person at that time that you're coming up with these ideas, and especially about image? at a very young age. Is that, is that something think, that then fed into what what became Pulp? I think so. I mean, you know, as you pointed out, at that point when I wrote that, uh, the group didn't exist. I couldn't really play. So what could I do? I could dream. I could I could visualise. I could I could make some ideas. And I took it further. If you, if you go a little bit further, like four pages on, then, you, then we get to the real meat of the matter here, which is, as you can see, the pulp master plan. So, <laughs> um, so I've done a logo here. Uh, at that time, the group was called Arabicus Pulp because the band was formed during an economics lesson. And I do believe that Arabicus Pulp <laughs> is some kind of uh, commodity that's traded on the stock market. It's, it, it's something to do with coffee, I think. Um, but yeah, then we get to the pulp master plan. Can I read Could you? Could you read us some? That would be great. Yeah, so. Uh, the Pulp Master Plan, Category A, Music. Being first and foremost a musical unit, it is fitting that Pulp's first conquest should be of the music business. The group shall work its way into the public eye by producing fairly conventional yet slightly offbeat pop songs. <laughs> After gaining a well-known and commercially successful status, the group can then begin to subvert and restructure both the music business and music itself. <laughs> so, hey, Jarvis, how did you go with that, do you reckon? You did a pretty good job, actually. Yeah, well, you know... <laughs> um, yeah. No, but it's funny you should ask that, because I do think, like I say, I'd forgotten that I'd written all this, but then... When I thought back, I thought, well, maybe some of that was in the back of my mind, you know. Um, pulp was always about um, trying to get something going. You know, that was the exciting thing of it, of trying to 
uh, it, it wasn't just about you know getting famous and, and having 20 Ferraris. Um, it was it was about trying to make something occur. You know that was that was always so. I think some of that stuck. You know it's it's funny. I, I do think that the ideas that you have when you're really young. They, they're just in your mind. They kind of become kind of part of the bedrock of your personality without you really being aware of it. You know, you, you carry them with you for the rest of your life. And you followed them through to a certain extent because I think... Well, I'm... I didn't... Look, I, I can show you. This, this, was, this was how it was supposed to work in diagrammatic form. So... <laughs> I don't know if you can see properly here. So we've Is got this fit. Yeah, we've got this fist and it says major record company and it's gripping this poor little figure here and this is a repressed artist <laughs> but the important bit is up here which uh, this is kind of a meat cleaver hanging by a thread <laughs> and the meat cleaver says pulp incorporated on the blade when that thread is broken that cleaver is going to fall and sever this arm brutal thus release the repressed artist from its grip. So <laughs> um, that's a beautiful dream. It didn't, we didn't quite achieve that, but, you know, it was a nice <laughs> ambition to have. Um, up until this point, you only knew how to play or you were trying to learn how to play John Denver's... Is it any song at this point? I'm glad you brought that up, yes. <laughs> um, well, that was... No, well that, well, that was the thing, you know, I did... Even though I was quite naive, I did realise that you have got to actually learn how to play songs. Yeah. So there was, a, there was a night school at the top of our road and they had like a beginner's class in folk guitar or something. So I, I went there a couple of times and, and one evening the, the teacher did tell us the chords to Annie's song and I kind of studiously wrote them down and tried to play it. But I was kind of lucky. I... I being of the generation that I am, uh, punk rock happened when I was, like, 15, 16. So around the same time when I wanted to be in a band. So uh, suddenly I realised I didn't have to try so hard to, you know, master, you fill up my senses <laughs> like a night in the fall, you know. Because uh, punk just said, oh, look, here's one chord, here's another chord, here's another chord, that's it. Just go and form a band, do it. You can do it. You don't have to learn all these technical things. And that was such a great kind of empowering thing to hear just at the right time I, that I needed to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. And in a sense, I guess, the, the music that you started to create after that, it was a combination of the, the sweet pop that you did grow up with before you got older and discovered punk especially the, the songs from the AM radio that you grew up listening to. And then it merged with an attitude that was outside, uh, uh, like an outsider's attitude, I guess, you brought to it. So it was a combination of the two, what you created in the end. I think so, yeah. I mean, I think that's it. You, you, you accumulate these things, you know, like I accumulated these things in a loft, a, a mixture of things. But you, it's the same kind of thing. I mean, at some point... In the book, I do kind of say maybe looking at this loft is like looking at the contents of my brain. You know, it's stuff that we absorb, because we all do it, you know, through telly that we watch as a kid and, and radio. It all goes in, especially when you're a kid, you really absorb it all, and it all gets mixed together, and that does produce some kind of sensibility. So, as you point out, you know, the first music I heard would 
be the radio playing when my mum was brushing my hair ready to go to school, you know, and it was like, you've got to remain completely immobile, otherwise you'll get the hairbrush on your head for, for, for fidgeting whilst you're getting ready to school. So I would listen very intently to the radio uh, to try and take myself somewhere else. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> yeah, the pop songs of that time, I, I, I realised that some of them I wasn't bothered about and some really had an effect. And the way I try and describe it in the book is to talk about the tingle. This is a feeling... I think is quite common in human beings is when you hear a song that you really like, you get this kind of very pleasant, <sighs> like a tingly feeling in your shoulders or your neck, you know. Um, do the audience, do you, audience, do you feel that? Feel the tingles? Yep, they, that's, yeah? yes. Good. Yeah, so, so I noticed that some songs would do that and I really liked this feeling uh, and thought, hmm, I'd like to be able to do that. And I think that was the beginning of wanting to be in a band, you know, to, to, mm. to find out where that tingle came from and then maybe find a way to actually make it happen yourself, to, to write songs that would do that to other people. Yeah. Well, speaking of feelings, we're going to move on to something a little bit more bawdy, perhaps saucy. Um, shall we show the slide? What's this, Jarvis? <laughs> The fantastic dirty joke book, if you can't see from the audience. Oh, you've still got it. <laughs> yeah, not, not that. I couldn't throw that away. No way. Um, well, yeah, so this is moving. This is a little bit before I wrote the, um, the Pulp Master Plan. This was, uh, we went for swimming lessons when I first went to secondary school and to we had to get on a bus to go into the centre of town and then get the bus home. One fateful day, when we got on the bus to come back to school, this was on the back seat of the bus they, That's a momentous day for any child that grew up without the internet. When you found stuff yeah. like that, for me it was in my uncle's shed. We found a stash of things and blew my tiny mind, let me tell you. When you find that, it's like gold, isn't it, when you're a kid? Well, it is, as, and... and uh, there was a big fight for it. That's why, the back, that's why the back cover has come off, so it got ripped off. In the uh, but somehow I won the struggle and took it home. And I think, I don't know, uh, God knows how I did that because there were much harder kids in our class than me. But I, I, I naively, because I, I would be just about going through puberty at this time, I, I was brought up in a very female-dominated environment. Basically, my father had left when I was seven. Uh, my uncle was around the same age as him. He died in an accident. There was only really one male presence, which was my grandfather, and he just seemed like an old man. He didn't seem like a, a sexually potent man. Maybe I'm doing him a disservice. <laughs> you never know. But <laughs> so in my kind of uh, naive, childlike mind, I thought, well, maybe I'll get some clues on sex from this book. Uh, I was really, you know, I was really wrong. I mean, we only really have to look at the cover. What did, what, I mean, what did it teach you? Well, yeah, you? because look, this, so there's this milkman with a, you know, looking like he's about to have a heart attack, um, a well-endowed woman, and she's saying, one gold top, top floor, please. I still don't understand no. that, really. <laughs> 
But I thought this must be some kind of, you know, coded message about sex. And and the book, I won't, um, you know, it's pre-watershed, so I won't show you inside. Uh, but um, the book is littered with, with jokes like this that, to, you know, I just didn't get them. So I thought, God, I'm... I, I, I'm hopeless, you know, I don't understand anything about sex, you know. Um, so it was, um, yeah, there's a, there's a sadness <laughs> to this book. But, <laughs> but, but you used but, it to teach your son, or at least to have a conversation with your son about sex, didn't you? Well, this, yeah, this is the thing. <laughs> and I love this. <laughs> well, yeah, so I kept hold of it, which won't surprise you now, since I seem to keep hold of everything. And then um, my, when my son was coming up to that same age, um, I started thinking about that, you know. And I think, you know, modern parents, as you, as you uh, mentioned, we now live in the age of the internet. So when you've got a kid that's coming up to that age and you know that they're going to start to get that curiosity and want to know about sex in some way, the thought that they might look for information of it, about it online is terrifying, I found that, you know, because I just thought, if you, you know, if you type in sex or, or any any kind of, you know, loaded phrase, the chances are you're going to see something probably quite foul <laughs> or, or whatever, extreme. So I I was thinking about this and then I remembered, oh, yeah, but I think I kept hold of that fantastic dirty joke book. So... <laughs> So I went and found it in the loft, and um, it was just a way to start a conversation. I'd, I'd made this, I guess I'd made this pact with myself uh, that when my son did get to that age, I would try and have a birds and the bees conversation because my father had been absent at that time and I'd felt really uh, adrift, you know. I, I, I was clutching at straws or clutching at fantastic dirty joke books, you know, for some information. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a way to start a conversation. I said, you know, when I was your age, I looked at this and I, I, I wanted to find out about sex and, and I looked here, uh, you might be thinking of looking online, da, da, da. And we started this kind of conversation. <clears throat> Slightly awkward, went on for about 10 minutes. And at the end of it, he just started laughing and said, We've been having sex education classes at school for the last year, so, <laughs> so you could have saved your breath. So, but the thing was, I did it, and, and it made me feel better, at least, whether it enlightened him in any way, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, Jarvis. That's just gorgeous. Um, we'll move on to the next slide. This one is the Rhythm Machine Guitarioke. Yes, now, no, that I looks like got a that. straightforward transistor to me, like a, a, a or a boombox or something, which I think most of us had. But it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah. Well, this was um, the other thing that was missing from my kind of uh, plan to be a rock star was a guitar. Uh, <clears throat> when I grew up, with, there was a guitar in the house, but it was like this. My mum had bought it just to hang on the wall because it was this nice kind of nice-looking acoustic guitar, but absolutely impossible to play. The strings were about that far away from the fretboard. <clears throat> and anyway, because of this kind of punk thing, I thought, punks don't use acoustic guitars. It has to be electric, you know, it has to be... So 
I was very lucky. My mum went, we went on a holiday to Mallorca, you know, oh no, Ibiza, you know, what, uh, one of the Balearic Islands just off the coast of Spain. To cut a long story short, my mum began a relationship with a scuba diving instructor who just so happened to have been in a band in his youth and he brought me an electric guitar. Your mum had a great holiday. She did have that a was a great holiday, holiday for her. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, you probably don't uh, want to think about that. <laughs> so I ended up with a guitar, but obviously an electric guitar <laughs> is not much use without something to plug it into. And so that boombox as, as that you showed, I'd pest, I pestered my grandparents to buy that. So it is, it is like a normal radio cassette player, but then in the top it's got a drum machine and then also you can plug your guitar in so you could play along with the drum machine or if you wanted to, you could also put the radio on and play along to songs on the radio. That's why I dubbed it the Guitarioke machine. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was the, that was really the big. So then, this was the beginning of me trying to to write songs. Um, it all kind of happened on there, uh, and also all my musical inspiration happened there as well. Because I was also at the same time as I was trying to teach myself to play the guitar, I would be listening to John Peel's radio show on on BBC Radio One every night and taping things, and then you know trying to work out how people made that sound and could I make a sound like that. You cite John Peel as one of your greatest musical influences and he had a radio show on BBC One for goodness knows how many years. Um, and you would eventually, and we'll get to when you eventually performed as part of his radio program because that was an exciting time for you too. Um, the power of radio in your life and the power of John Peel... Were you aware at the time of, of how much of an influence that would have on on the rest of your life? No, I, I suppose not. I suppose it's like all of these things, you know, it's it's the moment when you're born. At first, you have no, uh, you don't know anything, do you? You can't even see anything. Everything's all blurry. But you have this kind of. I think you have this assumption that the the world has always been the way it is when you enter it. But then, as you get older, you realise that you are born at a certain moment, and uh, with the John Peel thing, you know, he just happened to be on the radio. I discovered him again. It was a punk-related thing. When when punk started, you couldn't hear it on the radio in the UK. It was like people said, oh, it's not real music, you know, we're not going to play that rubbish. And I thought, God, this rubbish sounds really interesting. So um, I was, you know, on an old radio when he just twiddled the, the dial and, he, and eventually I had something that sounded a bit different and it was it was John Peel's show, and he was he was at that time the only outlet for alternative music in the UK. So that was incalculable, really. I'd been brought up on pop radio, but now there were all these other types of music, not just punk, but like reggae and sometimes like you know, kind of experimental jazz or whatever you know, stuff that you couldn't really categorise. I just kind of uh, it was like a whole new continent of music kind of opened up for me. So. It's hard to define how important that was. Mm. Well, the next slide is also another beginning for you and it's a ring pull from a can. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> What's the significance of this? Well, unfortunately, I haven't got that with me. Um, 
Ringfuls have changed over the years. <laughs> no, I bet no, no one thought we'd be having this conversation. Ring with Jarvis Cocker. Ringfuls have changed over the years. I love it. Well, it's true because now, now they don't. This is from the time when it, when you pulled a ringfuld, then it came off in your hand like that, and then you had to think, what am I going to do with this? Well, at our school, what we used to do is um, you could snap the tongue bit off, and then I don't know if you've still got the slide up there. That there are two kind of little slits next to there if you fit the tongue in there and then go like that you can flick the, the round bit at someone <laughs> not that much force but it's kind of fun to do it's like a little tiny metal frisbee um so um when i found that wrinkle unflicked i thought this is, this is rare this is rare this should be in the british museum it's, it's very it's very <laughs> very rare object but it also took me back to, um, and I can't say that this is from this particular event, but it took me back to the very early pulp rehearsals uh, because I'd managed to kind of persuade a few other kind of people who weren't into sport or anything like that to come to, I said, look, look let's be a band. So everybody was like, like me into the idea of a band, but not really knowing what we were gonna do. Uh, the first rehearsal we tried to have, only three people turned up. So I thought, how do we get everybody to turn up? And the answer was beer. So uh, one of the band, he had a Saturday job in a supermarket so he could access uh, beer underage. So he bought like a pallet of very cheap lager. And we said, okay, rehearsal Friday night, my house, free beer and um, that, that, that assured full attendance so uh, everybody turned up and um, I had to kind of assume you know I really wanted the band to happen so I had to kind of assume the, the mantle of responsibility so I'd ahead of that I'd worked out how to play the monkey's song Stepping Stone um, and also I'd written a song called Shakespeare Rock and, I, and uh, we learned to play those two songs that evening and, uh, and that was the start of it, basically. Do you have a recording of that first rehearsal or close to? I have... What I can show you... No. ..is this. This isn't, this isn't the first... Re well, this isn't that rehearsal. This isn't the beer rehearsal. <laughs> This, as far as I know, this is the earliest pulp rehearsal I've got. I think this is the first one. This uh, is terrible. <laughs> I mean, it's a nice-looking cassette. I like the typeface and all that, but the, the uh, this was the rehearsal before that only had three people. Basically, we went round to my grandparents' house. There was a there was an electric organ in their spare room. I had this, the terrible acoustic guitar I told you about with the, the strings so far away. And then the drummer, we didn't have any drums, so he just hit the coal scuttle, you know, the, the thing that you have the coal in with, with the little shovel that you... So that was a horrible noise, such a kind of... <laughs> noise. So I think we were that naive. We just thought if we made noise and recorded it, maybe magically a song would appear on the cassette. <laughs> maybe that's... Maybe that's how it works, you know. Uh, so we did that, and of course, no songs did appear on the cassette. And 
we, we started playing it back and, you know, we, we were excited at first and then after a minute it was like, well, God, this is terrible. This is just like <laughs> horrible, horrible noise. All except for this one tiny moment where um, a shaft of sunlight had come through a crack in the curtains in my grandparents' front room and it had blinded us all for a, for a, a, a moment. And then, uh, and we all stopped. So there was suddenly this kind of oasis of like, oh God, there isn't a horrible noise happening. And then in that gap, I went, ah, the sun. And it wasn't a song, but it was this thing where suddenly it gave you a clue that making music is about making things happen at the same time, coordinating your efforts, not having a competition to see who can make the most noise or who can play fastest. Try uh, and so that um, so it kind of yeah it, it gave me a clue. This is what you have to do. You have to um, make things happen at the same time, and occasionally sing. <laughs> and and uh, so that was yeah that was the first step towards making songs. Yeah, I love how the ring pull takes us to questions of creativity. Like where does creativity come from? You. From this part of the book, you talk about when you take classes for, for kids and you watch them as they be creative and how it starts and then how it ends is a really interesting progression. And it says a lot about how we are as creative human beings, doesn't it? Yeah, because I think, you know, there's... Uh, I, I, my experience has been that when you give kids instruments, obviously the first impulse is going to be make as much noise as possible because it's like amazing you know like usually in class every teacher's saying keep quiet listen to me you know you've got to pay attention if you suddenly give them things that can make noise and you give them permission to make noise on them they're going to make the most noise that they can so my strategy has been just give them the instrument and then put your fingers in your ears <laughs> for uh, a few minutes until they get tired of making this noise or they've got they've given themselves a headache then start to talk about these ideas about trying to make things happen at once. I do, partly due to the fact that I can't read music, but I, I, do, I don't try and impose too much of a structure on it because I think it's best to let the kids themselves do that because then a new idea might come, you know. Um, if you kind of teach them to play like blues, you know, da 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 it's boring, you know. Why would they want to sound like some bad bar band that you could see any night of the week, you know? Um, sometimes they, just because they get, like, a, an excitement from making an instrument make a noise, they'll come up with an idea that you never would have thought of. So I try to keep some of that chaos within it because I think that's, um, yeah, that's that's where... That, then it's your own creativity, not something imposed from some, somewhere else. Yep, fantastic. Let's move on to the next slide. This is a gold star shirt. And you had lots of shirts in your collection, but this one you kept? Would that well, be that right? Actually, I think I looked at these slides earlier. That's actually a star jumper, but I can I can show you what you look. Can you see that? Oh there. Yeah, look Gold at this. Star, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry that there's a bit of grime around, along the top of the collar. <laughs> I'm a bit embarrassed by that. Historical grime, Jarvis. Yeah. Well, the reason I'm showing you this slightly grimy shirt uh, is because 
this marked a, a very big stage in my life. This is the first second-hand clothing item that I ever bought. And um, obviously anybody who knows anything about my career will know that I'm known for... Nowadays, we call it vintage, I suppose, don't we, for wearing vintage clothes. But uh, at the time, it was the second hand. Or even just clothes that used to belong to dead people. Um, <laughs> and, and, and this really... It's kind of related to the, the, the picture that we looked of uh, of the uh, pulp wardrobe earlier. You know, um, I decided that I... And now I was in a band... I had to get the look together. I'd start, you know, getting my own clothes, not just wearing clothes that my mum had bought for me. Uh, but there was a big stumbling block in that plan in that I didn't have any money. So uh, luckily, again, you know, an accident of birth, whatever, there was, um, there was a church just like, you know, 200 yards up the road and they would often have jumble sales and they were super cheap. You know, it was like 5p to get in and it would be like, you would pay between five and ten pence for an item. So I, I started going to jumble sales, buying things. My mother was appalled at the kind of tat that I was bringing uh, home. But um, it was it was an invaluable thing for me because I, I would buy things, you know, and at first, again, it was a bit like the music thing. You know, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I would just like think, oh, that's a nice colour or whatever buy it, bring it home, look at it, and they try it on. Some things would be, ooh, you made a mistake there. Um, other things I would kind of work. And, and again, through a kind of process of trial and error, I guess I developed a sense of what I like to wear, a sense of fashion, a, a sense of style. It was your own style and, in a way, anti-fashion to a certain degree. It was... Well, yeah, I think the fact that... Um, as I said, you know, and also a bit to do with, with what Pulp have always been about, I guess, is, mm. is taking stuff that is, I guess people think of it as like society's uh, refuse <laughs> and, and kind of rummaging amongst it and, and finding it that it can tell a story about the society that has rejected it, you know, looking at stuff. Um, I don't know why, I've always thought that, that sometimes it's the ostensibly uh, throwaway items that often reveal more about uh, our society than, than the things that we put in frames and hang on walls. Mm -hmm. Well, you put this one on the wall, but you found it in the loft in a garbage bag, and this was the ticket to the John Peel show, the first gig that you were invited to perform on his radio show for the BBC. How did you feel when you found this ticket? Because that's pretty special. Yeah, I mean, this was another one uh, that for me was like finding a piece of buried treasure, you know, because that ticket, it's not an understatement to say that that ticket say, changed my life because, um, as we, you know, as said earlier, it was a massive influence. He, he broadcast five, I think four or five nights a week on the, on the radio and, and every indie band's dream was to do a John Peel session. So he, he had these sessions where he invited people down to the Maiden Vale studios in London and they would record four songs and they would be broadcast on the programme. Often this would happen before bands were signed, you know. He'd just have heard a band somewhere and, and decide to give them a session. I had given him um, 
a cassette copy of our very first demo. We, that ticket that, that you showed, he, he came up to Sheffield, he, he did, used to do a thing called the John Peel Roadshow, which sounds like it should have like people dancing or, or something like that, but it was really just him playing some records. Um, I, I kind of, you know, I went down on my own. I kind of uh, was really nervous about when I should give him the cassette. I didn't want to get on his nerves and, and then, therefore he took it in the bin. Eventually gave it to him as he was leaving. He said he'd listen to it on the, on the drive back home. And he must have been true to his word because about a week later, we got an invitation to go uh, down to London to record a John Peel session. And at that point, uh, I was just coming up to my 18th birthday, so I thought, this is it. As soon as I leave school, straight into, you know, pop stardom, we're there. <laughs> so uh, that ticket, you know, really gave me the confidence. Like, for instance, um, when I got to the end of school, I said to my mum, look, I'm not going to college, I'm not going to university, I'm, I'm going to do the band, this is, this is what I want to do. And it gave me the kind of confidence to do that. Uh, it was a bit of a shame. The other members of the band, their parents were much more strict, and they said, uh, "They said, oh, stop this bloody pipe dream, go to university." So they were kind of forced to do that. But um, yeah, so that ticket was really my entry to to my what what has ended up being my life. You know that I, I, uh, it, it, it said, "Okay, maybe this isn't such a kind of silly dream after all. Do it." And um, and so that's what I decided to do. Uh, sometimes along that journey, I sometimes question that decision because although I thought I was heading straight for stardom, straight <laughs> immediately after leaving school, it took from that point, 1981 to 1995 for Pulp to actually have a hit record. So 14 <laughs> years. Sometimes during those 14 years, I thought, hmm, was that the right decision? Well, Jarvis, that leads us to our next slide, which is a turtle. Uh, <laughs> perfectly timed, I think, after what you just said. What is this? And, and it's been a, the turtle's been a recurring motif through your life. Do you want to talk about what the turtle represents for your own creativity? I think it's time that I, I, I revealed the significance of the turtle, yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, I, I interpreted it more as a tortoise. Well... The, the, re the thing that gets me thinking about the turtle, first I should tell you, what you're looking at there is not just a plastic turtle come tortoise, it's a, a radio. And um, when, when you tune that radio in, it's, it's like its eyes flash in time with the music. Um, fantastic object. But the thing that got me thinking about that was, I'll show you this picture here. This is, so this is, a photograph that was taken by the local newspaper. When, when the news came that a, a group of school kids had secured a John Peel session, it was news in Sheffield. So they sent a photographer round to my mum's house uh, to take a photograph of us. So there we are in my mum's front room, which is where we used to rehearse every Friday night. And uh, I'd seen this picture because it had been published in the newspaper. I'd never seen a print of it. And um, when I saw a print of it, I kind of looked more closely. I thought, what is happening here? So let's look closer. And I don't, hopefully you can see. Can you see? I'm Almost. holding. I'm holding a tortoise. 
Um, that very one, the AM FM radio. Yeah. And uh, when I saw that, that kind of blew my mind in a way because I thought, how could I have known at that very moment that I was destined for life in the slow lane? Did somewhere within that mind covered by that bloody air, maybe there was some kind of premonition that it wasn't going to be straight from school to start and it was going to be this long, tortuous trek. Very, very slow. But, you know, if we remember the story of the tortoise and the hare, eventually the tortoise wins the race, doesn't it? Yep, correct. uh, Yeah, so that's why I think it was telling me to embrace my inner tortoise. I absolutely agree with that statement. Because <laughs> we have to accept ourselves, don't we, and, and how we work creatively. I think you do, yeah. I mean, I, I say in the book, I, I, I wish that I'd made more records. I wish that it hadn't taken me maybe to this stage in my life to actually write a book, you know. Um, but, yeah, you've got, you've got your nature, and, and for some reason it, it seems to take me ages to do anything. (laughs) Um, Jarvis, we're actually going to run out of time and I've still got loads more slides. So which of the three would you like to finish up with before I get to a few more general questions? You've got a choice between the carrier bags, Barry White's Mm -hmm. greatest hits tape or the tattoos book. Oh, yeah. Can I show you the... Because I've got the tattoo book with me. Oh, yes, let's go with that. Okay, so... Well, this is kind of fitting because this comes towards the end of the book. Let me show you that. So it's tiny. Um, can you see that? So this is a book of tattoos. And the reason I'm showing you that is um, this, I, I guess it, it must be probably the same thing in Australia. You know, when you've got one of those gumball machines, uh, yeah. all the gumballs are inside there. And then... What they used to do, and they still do it, is put these little tattoo books amongst the gumballs. And so, as a kid, you know, the, the, the lure of the gumball machine wasn't really the gumballs at all, because when you get one of those, generally speaking, as soon as you bite it, it just goes to powder. Because, um, like, those gumballs have probably been in there for, like, four years or something. <laughs> so... The thing that I was really wanting was to get one of these little books because they look very interesting. So I think they're a very pop item in a way. I think that's the way pop works, you know, this lure of excitement of this thing that you might be able to get. So every time I... There was, this, there was a gumball machine on the way to school. Whenever I had some loose change in my pocket, I would put it in there and, and, and try and get one. Love it. This went on for years lifting the little hatch, looking, just a gumball. Um, one fateful day, uh, rotated the, the thing, opened the hatch, and this book was there. So what did I do with it? Well, as you can see, I, I certainly didn't use it. I, I just Because it had taken so much time to get it, I, I just couldn't bring myself to use it. So but I am going to show you inside. Would you like to look? Yes, please. This is going to be difficult because, as you can see, it's quite small. Let's see what we get. So there we are, look. Oh, 
the serpent, the serpent, you know, like 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 back in the Garden of Eden, the serpent showing us about forbidden knowledge. Um, <laughs> what else have we got? Oh, an American flag. We'll, we'll pass over that. Uh, oh, the oh. sun. So, yeah, I I, I just. I guess I, I, what I ended up doing with this was um, I had like a kind of plastic apple thing that I stored little bits, trinkets in, and I put it in there. And that was there for years. And I, I kind of, as I characterise it in the book, I kind of thought of this as almost like a little book of magic spells. It was like to show you that the pop dream can come true, you know, it, Every, every day I'd pass that machine to no avail and then eventually it happened. So um, this proves that if you kind of do keep on your path, even if you are moving like a tortoise, <laughs> inch by inch by inch, eventually the dream can come true. And so this is it. That's why this book is important. It's the dream come true. It sure is. It's beautiful. <laughs> Jarvis, um, through the book too, speaking of, of pop sensibility, which is something you very much embraced because of your upbringing and it had a huge influence on the way you created and what you made. You talk about Andy Warhol as well um, and I love the line that pop had people reappraising the contents of their rubbish bins because we think about Andy Warhol and the Campbell's suit can and, and, and all of those sorts of things. But you also suggest that pop and the pop sensibility democratised creativity and art. How? Yeah, just, I mean, partly through that, that, you know, making people appraise. It was saying the things that you were surround, that are, you're surrounded by on a daily basis are valid, you know. Um, so taking a Campbell's soup can, as you say, and then putting it on a wall was saying, like, these things aren't just throwaway. They're, they're, because you have them in your life, they're significant. And um, I think it's hard, probably very hard for us now to imagine what impact that had at the time, you know, because now you see an Andy Warhol painting and really what you see is like a load of money nailed to the wall. You know, oh, God, that picture is worth... 40 million. So you may as well just be looking at loads of dollars nailed to a wall. Um, it, it, it's become, but I guess when he first showed stuff, people just thought this isn't art. You know, that often is the way with something that's important. At first, people just reject it because they just don't. It's too much of a break from what they've been taught. You know, the, the idea that art is some rarefied thing that comes from a high place. And he was saying, no, it can come from a low place, or, or the stuff that you might deem throwaway. So I think that had a massive effect. And it also meant that the general population could relate to it. And then the other pop movement that I talk about, I, I guess, is, is like, say, the thing of, of paperback books, you know, that uh, now uh, books and, and literature were, were available to people because you could buy a book that was like, I don't know, 50 pence or something like that. And so... Uh, it, it, again, it democratised, it meant more people had, had uh, access to it. So I think that's, for me, that's the idea of good pop, is, is stuff that um, uh, it, 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 it lets everybody participate. And I always think it's the more people can 
participate in things are more interesting it is when it's just a, a certain sector of society that have access to things it becomes very boring you know you, you need lots of voices there to, to make things interesting I've got a couple of questions before we wind up. This from Ariella in the audience who said, is that an Oxfam blazer you're wearing? <laughs> this, no, actually, well, this is a nice velvet um, pinstripe jacket. It is second-hand, look, it, it was made by a company called Roulette. Uh, but there's a guy in, in Camden Market who uh, I buy a lot of clothes off and uh, he, uh, occasionally I'll go around and see what he's got in. Usually the things are slightly damp, but uh, <laughs> I don't really go. I don't really go to uh, charity shops anymore because I don't know if it's the same thing in in Australia. They they kind of sift through the stuff too much now. Uh, it, you go into an Oxfam shop and it's all colour coded, just mm. like a rail of red clothes, a rail of green clothes, a rail of blue clothes. Uh, Maybe some people make their fashion decisions based on everything being the same colour, but I don't. I think this question is a great one to end on, Jarvis. It's from Vanessa, who's here tonight. Has writing this book changed your relationship to objects and collecting? Do you still collect things or are you cured of the compulsion? Well, I think we've established that I'm not cured of it. And I'll tell you a story that, I'll tell you a story that, that really illustrates that. So we looked at this earlier. Um, now, when I started the publicity trail for this book back in February, my first interview was with a guy called Adam Buxton. And um, I thought, well, you know, if we're going to be talking about the book, I'll take some of the objects with me. And, and this was one of them. And then when the book actually came out, we had like a, a, a small exhibition in London to celebrate it. So obviously, then I went looking for this again, to, for it to be in the exhibition. Could not find it. Panicked, you know. Uh, panicked to a degree that really appalled me. You know, I thought... <laughs> We've all been there, it's OK. You know, it's like, like, I was thinking, surely now I can let all this junk go because I've used it to make a book, so that's it. Great, job done, but couldn't find it. So... I kept going back, you know, like you do that thing when you've lost something, you keep going back to the place where you thought you put it, even though you've looked there like 20 times, you still think, oh, maybe it's going to magically appear this time. <laughs> Didn't do that. So sadly, I went to the extent of going on eBay and finding people who were selling old... Oh, Jarvis, no. <laughs> you know, there is, well, believe it or not, there's, there's a surprising number of people who deal in dead stock zone <laughs> and um, bought a bar and thought, if I can't find it, what I'm going to have to do is wash my hands constantly for about uh, three days and wear it down and then just pass it off as the one. To cut a long story short, I eventually went back to the place I'd looked 20 times and found the bag that I'd been looking in and then suddenly realised that it was one of those tote bags that have a little sewn-in pocket for you to put your wallet in. And this was in there. So this is, ladies and gentlemen, I can assure you the <laughs> real, genuine part of it. Uh -huh. 
Jarvis Cocker, you've been an absolute delight to talk to tonight. The book is is beautifully put together, um, not just in terms of the words and the memories and the stories, but visually it's an absolute treat as well. And um, I've just really loved being able to talk to you about all of this stuff. And, and I love the idea that creativity can come from anywhere and we don't necessarily have to have the great stuff around us all the time. It can sometimes come from something that you thought wasn't as meaningful as perhaps it is. And, and I love that you've shone a light on that. So thank you. Well, thank you. It's been lovely to speak to you as well. And um, yeah, you should say, I should say, I, I should give a shout out. The book was designed by a guy called Julian House and he really took it to another level. So I want to make sure he gets credit for that. Yeah. Excellent, Jarvis. Thank you so much for your time today. And I think the crowd are very appreciative too. Big thanks to Jarvis Cocker. Thank you. Woo-hoo. <laughs> thank you. Watch this talk and others from Antidote 2022 on stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.